Hi, I'm Chris Kona, and this is Search Terms. Welcome to Search Terms, where we unpack the complex concepts and ideas from the world of technology, business, and beyond. I'm Chris Kona from Wired Brand Lab. Today's topic is FinTech and You, how years of prototyping, big bets, and fast failure provided the small business community with the resources to digitize their points of sale and payments almost instantly during the COVID-19 pandemic, and what that means for businesses and consumers on the verge of a reopened economy. I'm joined by Senior Executive Vice President and Chief Digital Officer of U.S. Bank, Dominic Venturo, who has worked on the innovation and product management side of banking for over 20 years. Dominic, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Chris. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. So let's set the scene. Five to seven years ago, as consumers started moving increasingly online, mobile, cashless, just living from their phones, small businesses really seemed to lag behind. So then even 18 months ago, pre-pandemic, I could walk into a coffee shop and try to pay with my phone to give $3.50 for an espresso because I live in the Bay Area. And it wasn't guaranteed that someone was going to take that money from me. Then fast forward to a year ago, so solidly in the pandemic, and all of a sudden I knew I could walk in and tap with my phone, tap with my card if I could get it to work because I sit on the thing and it's broken. And overnight, my coffee shop was like, yes, we will take that $3.50 from you. That kind of feels like... Consumers were on board, the pipes were there, but small businesses, it took them that time to catch on. Am I generally correct there? Well, let me just sort of explain it maybe simply. When you think about sort of the evolution of the payments and the contactless payments and mobile payments more broadly, a lot of the pipes were in fact already in place. So your assumption there is correct. But the adoption on both the client side, in other words, customers using the digital wallet that was embedded natively within their mobile phone was lower. And then because there wasn't always a reason to do it, like my card worked just fine. Why do I need the mobile payment? So that was one thing. The other thing that happened was with the data security and the, in the EMV compliance, which is the chip cards that we all know today, when those were rolled out, most of the merchant terminals that enabled the chip card reading also had the contactless capability, but the contactless capability wasn't always turned on. So the pipe was on, but the pipe wasn't connected to be able to be used, which is sort of ironic. Obviously, depending on the system you're running, is that a an extra service tier for that vendor? Or was it just, I don't think I need this, I don't want to deal with it? It's multifold. So some of the merchant processors hadn't enabled it for the merchants. So the pipe existed at the payment network level, but not all the way down, even though the hardware could do it. So that was one piece. When we think about what we were doing at the time in U.S. Bank and Elevon, our payments business, all of the terminals that we were putting out with customers were enabled for both contactless and chip, right? But it was up to the companies and the businesses to decide to do. So the devices were out there. The mobile devices were in the consumer's hands that had the digital wallets, but a lot of consumers weren't using them. And lastly, the businesses, the acceptance businesses, weren't demanding anything change because it was working just fine prior to the pandemic. And then, of course, you have the pandemic happen, and we saw the massive acceleration of digital ecosystems. You know, many physical point-of-sale businesses had to rapidly go to order ahead. 
and remote delivery or order ahead and putting food on a, on a cart outside the business so that it could be safely picked up. And the business model changed overnight. Now, the good news is because the pipes were in place and because much of the capabilities existed, then it became a fast act of enabling as opposed to having to invent or adopt in a rapid way, Chris. More broadly at U.S. Bank, was there any hesitation from those customers? Like, I know that small business owners and understanding that I live in the tech heavy bubble of the Bay Area, where, you know, you just expect that you're going to be able to walk into somewhere and use Apple Pay or use Zelle or something like that. As these customers were moving to contactless and, you know, your customers, not the consumers, was there any hesitation at all? Were there security concerns or were you guys able to say, yes, you need this, here we go? I think it's more the latter, but I will tell you that the original market adoption varied widely by geography. So, you know, when we looked at mobile payments adoption in the early days of the pays, Mm -hmm. uh, as we kind of call them internally now, right? When we looked at the early adoption, we saw really fast adoption on the coasts where like in San Francisco, you have heavy, heavy tech centric companies, but also the people that live there because they're in that ecosystem are more amenable to rapid change, rapid adoption, early, early adopters type of thing. But, you know, if you're in the Midwest, like U.S. Bank, where we're headquartered, we saw a lot of things just sort of work perfectly fine the way they were. Now, when you had to make a change, that was a fairly easy conversation. And in a lot of cases, it was customers coming to us saying, I need to be able to do this. I need to be able to do order ahead. Yes, we have a solution for you. I need to be able to do e-commerce online ordering. So do you have a solution for that? And the good news is, you know, because we had been in this space and we had been early in a lot of those spaces, we did. So we were able to obviously help. So it was less about the massive sort of change on the payment side. There are, however, Chris, other pieces of that puzzle that the business has had to change. So think about the supply chain and all of the complexities involved in going from, you know, I have a physical store where I sell things to now I have to ship. So I need to enroll with a shipping company. I need to be able to do the payments to the shipping company. I need to be able to use my now a business card or a corporate card where I may have never had to do that before to be able to do the business version of e-commerce because that also was a thing that we saw really pick up as a result of sort of both the digital acceleration and in the COVID environment. And is there an out-of-the-box solution for like ready-to-go, ready-to-ship solution for that? So the answer is there are service providers that provide a lot of those solutions that are ready to go. They're not always payment integrated. That's kind of where I'm going with that. Yeah. So like as a bank and as a payments provider to these businesses, being able to have them issue a what we call a virtual card, which is really the commercial card of like what you think about within the pays. So being able to issue the payment credentials digitally so that they can then use them to do things like pay for the shipping, pay for the business side of the e-commerce, pay for the procurement, the business expenses, the uh, the new cleaning, uh, you know, companies and environment yeah. that they didn't have before. All of that is enabled by the by the payments business. Some of the other supply chain solutions are enabled by businesses that that's what they do for a living, but you still have to be able to do the connection to get the payment credentials in there securely and the like. Take us back a little bit, Dominic. 
I know in a previous role at US Bank, you were really involved in rapid prototyping and bringing products to market specifically. What was your roadmap to some of these products, the APIs? Like, how did development work for those that got us to where we are today, where we have this adoption? Sure. So, Chris, when I think about the evolution of like, let's use just mobile payments as the first example, I was leading the innovation group at the time we were actively doing what I would call applied research and development. So could we issue a credit card to a thing that was tied to a mobile, to a mobile phone? And we did the first ever in, in North America, we did the first ever mobile payment provisioning to a mobile phone. At the time it was a Nokia flip phone. They had an antenna in it and we could push a credit card payment to us. And so from that perspective, it was technical leading edge. Nobody had done it before. What we learned out of that, though, was really informative relative to how we ultimately adapted the roadmap. Because in order to do that, we literally had to give people phones that had the capability because the phone that could do it wasn't a phone the average consumer wanted to go buy. Do you remember which Nokia it was? No. Oh, okay. Was it brick-shaped? That's all I want to know. For the listeners, he's reached into a drawer. Yes, that one. I actually have it right here in my hand. Yeah. That's terrific. There you go. That's uh, awesome. Thank you. That's just for me. People weren't buying flip phones at the time. So we had to start we had to start by giving the customers the phone because they weren't otherwise buying it. That's a pretty big hurdle to entry for product development roadmap. And what we learned out of that then was yeah, we could technically provision the payments to the phone, but we we need to be able to technically provision the payments to any phone, whatever phone the customer has. Well, at the time there wasn't a solution in either the Apple or the Android marketplace to be able to provision payments to a phone. Didn't exist. So somebody in the group had the idea of, well, what if we created a payment sticker and we could take that small little sticker and stick it to the phone, which then you could just you could just tap the phone. And you know, this is an interesting way that the way innovation works, right? Because at first I was like, that's the dumbest idea I've heard in a long time. And then I was like, you know what, we should test that. And so we did because it would enable us to literally prototype what would it be like if you could put payments in whatever phone you already own. And that was sort of the aha. And what we learned out of that was that's what customers wanted. If they wanted it at all, they wanted it in the thing they already own. They did not want to have to change, you know, sort of other things. And and that's the way the ecosystem ultimately evolved, which was to be able to do the payment provisioning of the phones and the like. Now, the other thing that was happening was you know, we were watching the emerging communications trends changing for consumers mm-hmm. largely, right? So mobile phone adoption at the time was beginning to pick up. We were watching landlines going away. We were seeing the communication styles changing from voice conversation to text and messaging. So that informed other things for us. So the other things that informed for us were things like the ability to do online chat, the ability to do now two-way video which we're doing within our mobile support for customers. The ability to do things like instant messaging and instant responding were all things that came out of that experience and innovation process of looking at how behaviors were changing and then figuring out how we were going to ultimately adapt to those. Speaking of behaviors changing and adapting, can you read the coffee grounds in my $3 espresso for me? Like what 
consumer business development habits do you think we're going to keep from the pandemic now that we're on the very edge of a totally open economy? Like I'm sitting here in San Francisco, people have stopped wearing masks, businesses are open entirely, but I know I'm going to continue using my phone to pay for things just because it's easier now and it works better than sometimes, you know, my broken credit card from sitting on it. How much of that do you think will stick around? A lot of these things will stick and they will become both ands. So you will still do some of the things you used to do before, but the things that you tried or, or you may not have wanted to try them, but you had to try them and right. then they worked, you know, those are always happy surprises. Like, oh my gosh, that whole two-way co-browse thing, that was really that was really helpful. Or being able to hop on a Zoom call and have a conversation with a customer as a result of an appointment within 15 minutes is so much better. So than, much better. You know, calling, getting in a car, driving, waiting in line, and then finding out whether or not the right expert is actually there for you. So, you know, we learn from that as well. And now we do appointment scheduling with the right expert in our physical branch as a result. We weren't doing that before, but we did, you know, we were sort of had to do that as a way of changing the business. And now it's a better way of banking. And those things I think will, uh, those things I think will stick. We saw millions of customers who before were predominantly physical retail only interaction customers. We saw them use the digital tools and the digital capability. We tracked the customer satisfaction. All of that has been very strong. And yet, as we have sort of begun to come out of COVID and the physical branches have reopened and staffed up, we're seeing some of those folks go back to consultative advice, complex questions or problems, and they want to have those conversations with an individual or an expert. And then more of the transactions moving digitally. And that's how I think the trend will continue, Chris. So we'll see more of this sort of advice and consultation base around things that people are just inherently uncomfortable with the concept of money and managing money. They don't do it for a living like we do. So that piece of it, I think, will still be either video on demand or in person. And then the other transactions largely need to fall into the background and become invisible and just sort of happen uh, within sort of my permission and the way that I think about it, right? So why do I have to pull out my phone and make a payment at all for your coffee? Why can't I just get a coffee and walk out the door and have it be paid for. And that's sort of where the future is going, which is these things will happen more automatically. You know, the concept I've been calling that is ambient banking or ambient payments, but the whole idea is sort of smart interactions that enable things to just happen so that you don't have to hassle with them. Well, that's the part of the technology curve we're in, right? People younger than me don't remember when the Mac operating system was unstable and I had to use, you know, an arcane series of keystrokes to get my computer to start up if something went haywire in the TCP IP screen. But what's the hardware side of that ambient banking? Is it a wearable? Is it how are we tracking that in, for instance, Amazon's Go Shops? There's a complex systems of cameras that track you and, and other hardware. How do you envision that coming to life? So the answer to that, Chris, is it depends. But if you think about the reason that you need those cameras and the like is because there are no embedded sensors in the things that are in the store. So one of the other information technologies that we see advancing pretty rapidly is sort of this idea of very inexpensive tagging devices. So think about like, you know, the security tags that make the security thing beep. 
They used to be dumb. All they do is beep. But now they can actually have a serial number in a locator. And so if I have a sensor, I can know that you took that box and walked out the door with it. And I know exactly what product it was. Now, that requires supply chain and a whole bunch of other things. But for lots of reasons, that technology is advancing pretty rapidly. And so on the one hand, that's terrifying because if you think about everything being sensor enabled and identifiable, security, privacy, and all of that matters a lot. And the folks that are working in these spaces are paying attention to it. But I don't think it's too far before we'll see a lot of that. And in between now and then, we will see computer vision systems and other systems bridge the gap. But that's really all they're doing is bridging the gap between the physical world we're in today and the censored world we may be in in the future. Maybe to close out or take you on a small tangent, you mentioned people that are not financial professionals becoming more comfortable with banking. Do you see those people dabbling in things like cryptocurrencies that are, you know, they may hear about in the news, they're like, we're going to ride GameStop, and then they honestly have no idea what's actually being spoken about? Or do you feel like that's going to stay with hobbyist investors? My bodega on the corner has an old Bitcoin ATM, which I find kind of charming at this point, old because it's probably been there for 10 years. Do you see things like that actually? Are we going to hit mass adoption like Bitcoin was? at least in name, designed to do? Or do you see it as just a dabble for hobbyists? So I'm going to tackle that from three angles, Chris, because it. I think there are some things there that are, are good to understand. So as you think about market interest and sort of the general population and sort of cryptocurrency in, in a broad asset class, when we began to see headlines like be prepared to talk to your aunt or grandma about cryptocurrency at Thanksgiving, right. you, you knew that a lot of folks who probably weren't experts were beginning to have at least a passing interest in whether or not they should put some money into these things. And, you know, it's a little bit frightening because of the, because of the massive risk involved, at least in the current, in, in the current asset class and ecosystem. And so, you know, that's one thing, which is all the media coverage. And I don't mean noise in a negative way, but just all the noise causes people to ask a bunch of questions. And so that's one. Then the other is then the actual complexity to being able to get in and participate in the asset class or in that kind of an ecosystem. In a, you know, a year and a half ago, it was pretty darn hard. And it was very technically advanced. You had to be you know, a bit of a tech geek like us to be able to do it. But now we're starting to see these exchanges make it really easy. We're seeing other payment providers make it pretty simple to be able to move money in and out of. And so we're starting to see those things that enable people to participate. The issue then is, what is the actual utility? Like we hear examples of people very, very in the early days who did things like buy a pizza. And if you calculated today's values, that pizza was a, you know, $5 million pizza or whatever the number is, right? It was a terrible decision. Terrible decision. Like why would you buy a consumable good with an asset class if you think of it as an asset class? But nonetheless, some people do it. So the ultimate utility value still needs to be proven out. Now, as a large bank and as somebody who works you know, directly in the payment space on things like real-time payments and all of these things that we do within the banking system, I'm hard-pressed to find a lot of utility value for yet another way of making a payment electronically when, when we have so many of them. But that's sort of the area where there's a lot of innovation happening. If we're talking about ambient baking, 
and there's a stopgap to tagging. Maybe we're using biometric IDs and we have two-factor and strong passwords. The security of these systems are well-tested at this point, I would, I would say. There are, people are used to using them. Where are you going from here in your R&D? What, what, what's the next challenge that U.S. Bank and your team is tackling? So Chris, as we think about the conversation that we've been having and a lot of the enabling technologies, so whether it's the ability to do virtual payments or whether it's the ability to do the digital provisioning of payments into wallets and the like, the location-based services, asset tacking and tracking, right? We've talked about a bunch of these different kinds of things. When you have all of those things in place or begin to have them all in place, then you enable what I'm going to call smart transactions to happen, which are data-driven enablement. It's one thing to say, well, I have all these capabilities. It's another thing to say, can I enable them smartly? Can I use all of the massive data associated with all of those signals to be able to do some basic things? And I'll give you just a very simple example. When customers enable, for instance, their account connections to us, then we begin to develop what we call insights. And the insights are based on the customer's actual behavior. So an insight might be, hey, it looks like you had two charges from the same merchant. You might want to dispute one of them as a duplicate charge. That's a data-driven insight, right? It's very simple, but it's also very helpful because often people don't review their transactions and don't realize Mm -hmm. they got charged twice. Or, hey, we just saw a transaction for a subscription happen. You might have forgotten that your free trial expired which is a very common thing that happens. And then customers are like, oh, dang, I didn't mean to pay for that $70 subscription to that free trial. So that would be another example. A more advanced example is we actually look at your cash flow. So your automated deposits that happen every two weeks, we look at your spending, and then we look at your savings goals. And we actually come to you and say, the the insight card, it's called pay yourself first. But the insight card comes to you and says, hey, Chris, you're trying to save for this thing and you can get to your savings goal faster because you have an extra $150 you can move into savings safely and still be able to pay all your bills on time, not go overdrawn and the like. So that's a more useful and, you know, a little bit more advanced view. And then if you add on top of that things like automated investing and the like and portfolio balancing, you begin to get to the point where, it's clear that the data-driven decision-making within your risk framework, within what it is that you're hoping to accomplish is the important element here. Because just doing transactions is a utility. Most everybody can do that. But when you can actually add value and allow people to improve their financial lives, save some time, not spend time figuring out how to pay bills that you just know you're gonna pay anyway, so why not just pay them? All of that can enable you to free up time to do the things you really wanna do. That's an incredible service to consumers that they probably don't even realize can be an option for them. Dominic, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really excellent conversation and a great way to get into sort of a complex, thorny topic. Yeah, Chris, I appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. All right, have a good one. Thank you. You too.